I'm Satya doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. So today we are continuing our journey with Jung through the depths of the unconscious and all that he encountered. And we are continuing with chapter six, officially chapter six, um, called Death, and then also to chapter seven called The the Remains of Earlier Temples. And this is going to kind of begin to conclude, in a way, our journey through the last few chapters as well with the Red One and Ammonius, the Anchorite. And it also is just, it feels very yin and yang, um, or yin and yang, and it continued, that yin and yang sense is, of course, part of this entire book, without question. But also, as we go into this next journey where we encounter uh, Isdubar shortly, there's this sense of the cold and the hot, the light and the dark, the good and evil, these polarities, the masculine and feminine for me don't really feel as though they arise much in polarity in these chapters, the way that we were wrestling with the polarities of masculine and feminine previously. We're really more you know, in these different kind of polarities of good and evil, uh, again, cold and, and hot, et cetera. So Carol, I think you wanna start us off with some storytelling here? Well, and, and a little, I'll do a little reading. Um, but, you know, last week, we, we, the polarities of the desert and the garden in the desert and of the masculine and the feminine and coming to terms with solitariness. And at the very end on page 262, he says, I ate the earth and I drank the sun and I became a greening tree that stands alone and grows. And remembering that, that when he sets out and discovers himself in the desert, he has said to his soul, take me where you will. And so he's, he's now fully in and on this journey. And now it's January 2nd, 1914. He says, on the following night, I wandered to the northern land and found myself under a gray sky in misty, hazy, cool, moist air. I strive to those lowlands where the weak currents flashing in broad mirrors stream toward the sea where all haste of flowing becomes more and more dampened and where all power and all striving unites with the immeasurable extent of the sea. Um, This reminded me very much of of reading number eight in the Yi Jing uh, and reminded me very much, I think this reaches back energetically and, and psychically to the encounter with the lowly, that energy and, and water goes to the lowest place, not the highest place, and that there is a, not a prescription or a command, but that something happens when all things flow together and surrender their distinction to go to oneness that releases another possibility. So that's really what he's talking about in, in this arrival at this place. He says, someone's standing there on the last dune, He's wearing a black wrinkled coat. He stands motionless and looks into the distance. I go up to him. He's gaunt and with a deeply serious look in his eyes. I say to him, let me stand beside you for a while, dark one. I recognized you from afar. There is only one who stands this way so solitary and at the last corner of the world. He answered, stranger, you may well stand by me if it is not too cold for you. And as you can see, I am cold and my heart has never beaten. Jung says, I know you are ice in the end. You are the cold silence of the stones 
and you are the highest snow on the mountains and the most extreme frost of outer space. I must feel this, and that's why I stand near you. And as he stands here with this dark, cold figure, he says, I see, the death says to him, the dark man says to him, look more closely, what do you recognize in this dark wall of clouds swimming towards them on the tide? And Jung says, I see densely pressed multitudes of men, old men, women and children. Between them I see horses, oxen, and smaller animals. A cloud of insects swarms around the multitude, a forest swims near, innumerable faded flowers, an utterly dead summer. They're already near, how stiff and cool they all look. Their feet do not move, no noise sounds from their closed ranks. They're clasping themselves rigidly with their hands and arms. They're gazing beyond and pay us no heed. They're all flowing past in an enormous stream. Dark when this vision is awful. You wanted to stay by me, says the dark figure, so get hold of yourself and look. And then he goes on to say, the dark sea breaks heavily. A sea of blood foams at my feet. How strange I feel. Blood and fire mix themselves together in a ball. Red light erupts from its smoky shroud. A new sun escapes from the bloody sea and rolls gleamingly toward the uttermost desk and disappears at my feet. And then he looks around and sees solitude. And then at the end of page 265, he says, when I comprehended my darkness, a truly magnificent night came over me and my dream plunged me into the depths of the millennia and from it my phoenix ascended. I just want to reflect on the um, image that goes with this. So what we're seeing here is a, a many-legged, segmented, dark creature, black with um, multiple, it looks like feet or wings or snake heads emerging from the segmented body. There's a row of jagged teeth and a frowning face with stark, wide-open eyes that is, has as its root, as its origin, a burning red sun that is emanating from a dark sea. What really captured my attention, though, in addition to this central image where later he talks about, you know, later we'll find a lot of references to chameleons, to worms, is that all of the imagery that is on the border, particularly this power of the bottom, this dragon here at the bottom, and these images of ascendants and ladders and prayer figures and rattles um, that are all around it. And... I had the great good fortune uh, two or three years ago to travel to Mexico, where I went to Teotihuacan, which was an enormous, enormous series of Temple to the Sun, Temple to the Moon, and a Temple to the Plumed Serpent that had been, by the time I got there in 2017, had been pretty well excavated and scholarized by cultural anthropologists, but they had just recently discovered the Avenue of the Dead that led underground between the Temple of the Plumed Serpent way to the south of the Temple of the Sun and to the Temple of the Moon. And in this newly excavated Avenue of the Dead, of course, is a ritual procession that when you die, you have to go down a very long dark avenue where you are changed and it's very much this idea of something being born out of the journey mm. um, i'll show one more uh, as an example you know the 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 mexican culture and the um, Aztec and the Mayan cultures, every world culture has an avenue of the dead that is guarded by animals. You know, in the, in the Egyptian, the, the Egyptians have re remarkable, phenomenal art. The Tibetans have pictures of the bardos. So you, this encounter of Jung's, of, of this cold, dark place where there is a journey out of which an animal form is arising both as, a, in a way, a, a way shower, a greeter, 
and, and, um, and messengers about this process. I was very struck not only by the, the beginning of this passage, but by the imagery that he used to, to, to describe his experience of it. Thanks, Carol. I think it really is such a beautiful setup for us because he really is starting to build towards his understanding of living the animal self, which again, I think we haven't encountered yet in the way that he speaks to it. But you can feel as, as we continue this journey together, he'll really get there in more specifics, but you can feel him deconstructing everything that he was raised with and everything that society raised him with and deconstructing it in his own skin, like deeply metabolizing this because it has failed to fully work for him. You know, it somehow is failing to work for the world. The world is in catastrophe um, and getting closer and closer to catastrophe. So, so he's breaking down all this stuff. It's not just that his, his own philosophies are dying. It's not just that he's encountering death here in this cold landscape, but he's really also trying to find this animal way back to existence, the greening, the greening of existence. And I think one thing that just touches me in these two chapters we're going to see, um, I think of as just the mess, the mess of life. Messiness is the word that I often associate with this because I think in every religious tradition that I encountered and every philosophy that I went to to try to support me to make sense of existence, there was always a sense that I was supposed to in some way be good or better or not this or not that. And it wasn't until I encountered Jung's psychology and really in many respects the red book um that i understood in my bones that i was allowed to be a mess in order to get to this next thing you know this idea of like kind of dancing too much or being too crazy or being too this or that because you're we're navigating through our own existence here instead of trying to be good or anything so he's breaking all of this down in all of the different traditions he's breaking it down so Carol really left off that midsection on page 265, and I'm going to start there again. He gets into his philosophy here. He says, but what happened to my day? Torches were kindled, bloody anger and disputes erupted. A darkness seized the world. The terrible war arose and the darkness destroyed the light of the world since it was incomprehensible to the darkness and good for nothing anymore. And so we had to taste hell. I saw which vices the virtues of this time changed into, how your mildness became hard, your goodness became brutality, your love became hate, and your understanding became madness. Why did you want to comprehend the darkness? But you had to, or else it would have seized you. Happy the man who anticipates this grasp. Did you ever think of the evil in you? Oh, you spoke of it. You mentioned it. And you confessed it smilingly as a generally human vice or a recurring misunderstanding. I just want to pause to honor again the kind of the wrestling of this person who's understanding that that the way we see this all the time, we all do it, you know, to claim like, oh, I know I'm kind of this, or I know I'm sort of that, you know, we're always doing, but he's really saying, I'm, you know, I'm bullshitting, I'm lying, there is something much deeper and more wretched here. And it's not just being bad, there's something that's trying to come through him in a way and the encounter with this. So he's calling himself out, you know, he's calling out the kind of performance. And he's done this in previous chapters of the performance of being a good person. So I'll start here again. But did you know what evil is and that it stands precisely right behind your virtues, that it is also your virtues themselves as their inevitable substance? You locked Satan in the abyss for a millennium. And when the millennium had passed, you laughed at him since he had become a children's fairy tale. But if the dreadful great one raises his head, the world winces. The most extreme coldness draws near. With horror, you see that you are defenseless and that the army of your vices falls powerless to its knees. With the power of daemons, you seize the evil and your virtues cross over to him. You are completely alone in this struggle since your gods have become deaf. You do not know which devils are greater, your vices or your virtues, but of one thing you are certain, that virtues and vices are brothers. 
We need the coldness of death to see clearly. Life wants to live and to die, to begin and to end. You are not forced to live eternally, but you can also die since there is a will in you for both. Life and death must strike a balance in your existence. Today, men need a large slice of death since too much incorrectness lives in them and too much correctness died in them. What stays in balance is correct. What disturbs balance is incorrect. What stays in balance is correct. What disturbs balance is incorrect. But if balance has been attained, then that which preserves it is incorrect. And that which disturbs it is correct. <laughs> He's being a trickster here, so I'm going to read that one again. But if balance has been attained, then that which preserves it is incorrect, and that which disturbs it is correct. Balance is at once life and death. For the completion of life, a balance with death is fitting. If I accept death, then my tree greens, since dying increases life. If I plunge into the depth, encompassing the world, then my bud breaks open. How much our life needs death. Joy at the smallest thing comes to you only when you have accepted death. But if you look out greedily for all that you could still live, then nothing is great enough for your pleasure. And the smallest things that continue to surround you are no longer a joy. Therefore, I behold death since it teaches me how to live. If you accept death, it is altogether like a frosty night and an anxious misgiving, but a frosty night in a vineyard full of sweet grapes. You will soon take pleasure in your wealth. Death ripens. One needs death to be able to harvest the fruit. Without death, life would be meaningless since the long lasting rises again and denies its own meaning. To be and to enjoy your being, you need death and limitation enables you to fulfill your being. Mm. Yeah. Yin yang. Right. My Chinese teacher says, yang without yin is a ghost. Yin without yang is a corpse. Mm. It's yeah. the constant rhythm of light and dark. You know, every day, every every month, every every year, every nanosecond. I I sometimes think of the sine wave that way. Think of my pulse that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I love how Jung just again comes in with that line, and then when you achieve balance, it has to be disrupted. You know, it's that it's the constant. Just for me, again, that recognition that that um. There is never a still point that does not get disrupted. There is never a meditation that does not get disrupted. There is never a goodness and a, a kindness that does not get disrupted by existence. I think of astrology then too. We, no matter how perfectly we align it all, there's some retrograde that's going to come mess with us as we are <laughs> fully aware of right now, you know? So the other thing that, that really struck me as I was reading this chapter, never mind that there are echoes of prof prophecy. Mm -hmm. You know, both not only in his vision, but the idea of the prophet as the person who's alone, who sees things in a way other people don't see and who, bear, who has to bear it. Mm -hmm. But also, of course, this leads directly to the remains of earlier temples because we build structures to hold things immutably. Mm -hmm. And those have to collapse too. You know, systems of beliefs, edifices. And, and all, it, it's why I was so struck by that he's he's not intending to go here in this but it's where it takes him it takes him from his own ego structure to collective spiritual and psychological and social structures you know of which a temple is a really in interesting expression mm -hmm. carol you had wanted to speak to to footnote 75 do you still does that still yeah. feel i was let me read it to live what is right and to let what is false die that is the art of life such a good line. Can you just read that again? It's such a good line. To live what is right and to let what is false die, that is the art of life. Life is an energetic process like any other, but every energetic process is in principle irreversible and therefore unequivocally directed toward a goal, and the goal is the state of rest. From the middle of life, only he who is willing to die with life remains living. Since what takes place in the secret hour of life's midday is the reversal 
of the parabola, the birth of death. Not wanting to live is identical with not wanting to die. Becoming and passing away is the same curve. And yet you have to do it. You have to live and you have to die. When we talk a little bit about, about the temples and the remains of temples, um, I, I think about this not only from a personal point, point of view of taking the time to come with your, to terms with your own demons and your own uh, vices that stand behind virtues, but have really been thinking about our country and about the, the horoscope of the United States. And here we are in the Pluto return. So if we have time, I'll, I'll come back and talk about that a bit. I know we want to hear all about it. So we begin then with chapter seven. And I think again, I'm going to ask Carol, do you want to do a little storytelling again for us here? Well, he's, he, and he's, I'll read a little bit of it and then I'll summarize it. This, this, the dialogue is just so good, but I can read that too, if you prefer. Yeah, you read the dialogue, but I'll just say that here he is. Now he's, now he's left the sea. Another new adventure has occurred. Wide meadows spread out before me, a carpet of flowers, soft hills, a fresh green wood in the distance. I come across two strange journeymen, probably two completely accidental companions, an old monk and a tall, gangly, thin man with a childish gait and discolored red clothes. And as they draw near, I recognize the tall one as the red rider. How he has changed. He's grown old. His red hair has become gray. His fiery red clothes are worn out, shabby, poor. And the other, he has a paunch and appears not to have fallen on bad times. But his face seems familiar. By all the gods, it's ammonious. So he has encountered the red one and the anchorite. So why don't you take it from there, Satya? So, and I just want to speak to this one line that I read, because just to feel for all of us, we're feeling the, the pairing of these two. So this line that I read previously on 266, I'll read again. You do not know which devils are greater, yeah. or vices or your virtues, but of one thing you are certain, that virtues and vices are brothers. So here Jung is encountering these two figures, one who he'd originally seen as kind of a perfect essence of goodness in a way, this quiet father, and the other whom he'd encountered as his devil. And they both now see Jung, and they make the sign of the cross and jump back. And Ammonius exclaims, horrified, Apage Satanus, the red one, damn pagan riffraff, and Jung says, but my dear friends, what's wrong with you? I'm the hi Hyperbian stranger who visited you. Oh, Ammonius in the desert. And I'm the watchman whom you, Red One, once visited. Ammonius says, I recognize you, you supreme devil. My downfall began with you. The Red One looks at him reproachfully and gives him a poke in the ribs. The monk sheepishly stops. The Red One turns haughtily toward me. He says, Already at that time, I couldn't help thinking that you lacked a noble disposition, notwithstanding your hypocritical seriousness, your damned Christian play act. At this moment, Ammonius pokes him in the ribs and the red one falls into an embarrassed silence. And thus both stand before me, sheepish and ridiculous and yet pitiable. Jung says, where from, man of God? What outrageous fate has led you here, let alone in the company of the red one? Ammonius says, I would prefer not to tell you, but it does not appear to be a dispensation of God that one can escape. So know then that you, evil spirit, have done me a terrible deed. You seduced me with your accursed curiosity, desirously stretching my hand after the divine mysteries, since you made me conscious at that time that I really knew nothing about them. Your remark that I probably needed the closeness of men to arrive at the highest mysteries stunned me like infernal poison. Soon thereafter, I called the brothers of the valley together and announced to them that a messenger of God had appeared to me. So terribly had you blinded me and commanded me to form a monastery with the brothers. When brother Philetus raised an objection, I refuted him with reference to the passage in the Holy Scriptures where it said that it is not good for man to be alone. So we founded the monastery near the Nile from where we could see the passing ships. We cultivated fat fields and there was so much to do that the Holy Scriptures fell into oblivion. 
We became voluptuous, and one day I was filled with such terrible longing to see Alexandria again. I talked myself into believing that I wanted to visit the bishop there. But first, I was intoxicated so much by life on the ship, and then by the milling crowds on the streets of Alexandria, that I became completely lost. As in a dream, I climbed on to a large ship bound for Italy. I felt an insatiable greed to see the world. I drank wine and saw that, that women were beautiful. I wallowed in pleasure. Here's pleasure again. Pleasure, which Jung speaks to so much, is balancing out, right? The scholarship and the headiness. I wallowed in pleasure and wholly turned into an animal. When I climbed ashore in Naples, the red one stood there, and I knew that I had fallen into the hands of evil. Then the red one pipes up. Be silent, old fool. If I had not been present, you would have become an outright pig. When you saw me, you finally pulled yourself together, cursed the drinking and the women, and returned to the monastery. Now hear my, my story, damned hobgoblin. I too fell into your snare, and your pagan arts also enticed me. After the conversation at that time, where you caught me in the fox trap with your remark about dancing, I became serious, so serious, that I went into the monastery, prayed, fasted, and converted myself. So the two flipped places, right? They switched places completely. Who's virtue and who, who's vice now? So the red one says, in my blindness, I wanted to reform the church liturgy, and, I, and with the bishop's approval, I introduced dancing. I became abbot. And as such, alone had the sole right to dance before the altar like David before the Ark of the Covenant. But little by little, the brothers also began to dance. Indeed, even the congregation of the faithful and finally the whole city danced. It was terrible. I fled into solitude and danced all day until I dropped. But in the morning, the hellish dance began again. I don't know if people are familiar with the red one fairy, I'm sorry, the red shoe fairy tale. The red shoes force the girl to just dance endlessly and she can't stop dancing. That really feels quite similar here to this image. So in any case, it continues, you know, with the storytelling. Ammonia says, I must confess, I did not fare so badly with the red one after all. He's a toned down type of devil. <laughs> and the red one says, I must add that the monk is hardly the fanatical type, although I've developed a deep aversion against the whole Christian religion since my friends at the monastery. So Jung says, dear friends, it does my heart good to see you enjoying yourselves together. And they say, we are not pleased, mocker and adversary. Clear off, you robber pagan. Jung says, but why are you traveling together if you're not enjoying each other's company and friendship? And Ammonia says, what can be done? Even the devil is necessary, since otherwise one has nothing that commands a sense of respect with people. So I'll pause there. There's an... Kind of endless amount of reading here, but um, but just feeling this this kind of illustration of the union of opposites and the illustration of give in live in lived experience of what it is to be as humans, you know, for each of us. I mean, for me, there's such a personal quality to it to be too serious and then kind of end up dancing and playing and drunk all night long, you know, or to be drunk all night long long and then become a born again Christian. You know, there's this kind of attempt on so often we see within ourselves and with others of trying to find the balance by reverting to opposites. And you can just feel this dance going on for each of them of trying to, you know, work life and what their true balance is. And it's sweet, I think, to see Jung kind of toying with them a bit because because he's been on this journey that they're on, you know. And I like it that he says at the end, let me pass you old ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> Done with them. Good luck. That's right. <laughs> no. Yeah. So but where it goes from here, he talks about having seen death, that he's thirsty for life, dancing, and then he's reborn, swaddled in the covers of a sickbed, born into life from below. This is the image of the dark segmented figure coming out of the red sun, I think. And I grew up as heroes do in hours rather than years. And after I had grown up, I found myself in the middle land and saw that it was spring. And he says, but I was no longer the man I had been. For a strange being grew through me. This was a laughing being of the forest, a leaf green diamond, a forest goblin and prankster who lived alone in the forest and was itself a greening tree being who loved nothing 
that greening and growing, who is neither disposed nor indisposed toward men, full of mood and chance, obeying an invisible law and greening and wilting with the trees, neither beautiful nor ugly, neither good nor bad, merely living, primordially old and yet completely young, naked and yet naturally clothed, not man but nature, frightened, laughable, powerful, childish, weak, deceiving and deceived, utterly inconstant and superficial, and yet reaching deep down, down to the kernel of the world. I had absorbed the life of both of my friends. A green tree grew from the ruins of the temple. They had not withstood life, but seduced by life had become their own monkey business. They had got caught in the muck, and so they called the living a devil and traitor. Because both of them believed in themselves and in their own goodness, each in his own way, they ultimately became mired in the natural and conclusive burial ground of all outlived ideals. The most beautiful and the best, like the ugliest and the worst, end up someday in the most laughable place in the world, surrounded by fancy dress and led by fools and go horror struck to the pit of filth. After the cursing, comes laughter so that the soul is saved from the dead. I, I found that that section to be incredibly powerful. And then he goes on, and this is where he talks about ideals as a temple. Mm -hmm. Ideals are according to their essence, desired and pondered, and they exist to this extent, but only to this extent. Yet their effective being cannot be denied. He who believes he is really living his ideals or believes he can live them suffers from delusions of grandeur and behaves like a lunatic in that he stages himself as an ideal. But that, that hero has fallen. Ideals are mortal, so one should prepare oneself for their end. And at the same time, it probably costs you your neck. For do you not see that it was you who gave meaning, value, and effective force to your ideal. If you have become a sacrifice to the ideal, then the ideal cracks open, plays carnival with you, goes to hell on Ash Wednesday. The ideal is also a tool that one can put aside any time a torch on dark paths, but whoever runs around with the torch by day is a fool. How much my ideals have come down and how freshly my tree greens. There's something so remarkable about this. He he goes on to speak to the ideals being the slave, right? And so, yeah. again, this kind of essence that if we are not the ones staying green and constantly living and letting the ideals transform with our own constantly dying and rebirthing truth and relation to the world, then we just became shack we become shackled to whatever concepts or ideals, whatever meditation practices whatever specific rigid times of day we're supposed to do this or things we're supposed to eat or not supposed to eat. You know, there's, there's no way then for us to stay living and growing within that and changing and transforming the way that we are supposed to change and transform the way that life is moving through us. So he's really, I mean, it's a, for me very profound to just call out what happens and the ways that we die in this. It also just pulls me right back to that quote that I read from James Baldwin a couple weeks ago. And what he is saying is, is if white people in America, and this was back in the 60s, but I don't think it's any less true. You know, if white people in America are so determined to be these kind of rich, stiff, quote unquote, good people living quote unquote ideals, then all of the life and all of quote unquote bad stuff, you know, but pleasure, joy, dancing, it has to be rejected and projected somewhere. And so he's, again, Jung is speaking to pulling back pleasure, dancing, the greening of life, the experience of existence. And it, for me, it's the exact same thing that Baldwin says in that essay, until white people learn to love themselves and each other or learn to enjoy existence, then this projection will never end. Again, for me, fundamentally, part of anti-racist work, part of anti-sexist work, anti-patriarchal work, um, you know, all of this essence is we have to find our wholeness within our bodies instead of trying to be good or adhere to any ideals, because fundamentally, if we stay stuck there, 
we have to let somebody else or force somebody else to live those qualities. So I, this might be a good time to talk about Pluto. Let's do it. This is the horoscope of the United States of America. There's, there's disagreement about the birth time of us as a country, but this is what most astrologers work with. 4th of July, 1776, 510 p.m., Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's called the Sibley chart. And in the horoscope, a part of all of us is death, Pluto. And in the United States horoscope, it's also power. Pluto's also power. So in this inner wheel is the, is the birthday of the United States of America. And there are some lovely things to look at, Saturn and Libra in the 10th house, although this is a temple of ideals, of shoulds. And uh, uh, Jupiter and Cancer conjunct the Sun and Venus, a tender regard and a desire to make a safe, protective place for everyone. But we also have Pluto in the second house. And in the, in the geography of the horoscope of, of how we live here on Earth, the houses are places where action occurs. If we were watching a, a movie or a play, it would be a setting or a scene in which the action is occurring. So the setting is money or value. Some astrologers call the second house the money box, but I, I think of it as what's enough? How do we make contributions to the world? How do we value those contributions? How are those contributions valued? What do we assign value to? And what's enough? When do we know that something's enough? So the symbol of Pluto, Pluto is Hades. And I'm going to read from a quite remarkable book by a very good Jungian analyst turned astrologer, Liz Green, who wrote a book about Pluto called The Astrology of Fate. And she describes the mythological Pluto, whose Greek name, of course, was Hades. The epithet Pluto, which means riches, is important to recognize in our euphemistic references to the unconscious as the giver of wholeness, a storehouse of abundant riches, a place not of fixation and torment, but a place that offers fertile plenty. Pluto's first name, his interim name between Hades and Pluto was Plautus, which means riches or wealth. So Pluto is also associated with the wealth that's cannot be seen, invisible under the surface well. So gold and diamonds and oil, it's a modern ruler of the idea of oil, of, of the richness of the energy that's generated from below the surface. On a more psychological way, it's psychology itself. It's the underworld and the power and potency of the underworld. And all of, of, of Hades, Pluto's brothers, Zeus and Poseidon, they, they had their worlds too. They ruled their worlds. But if you went into Hades' world, you didn't come back. And if you came back, if you got in, first of all, if you had the money under your tongue to cross the river, to cross and begin to transform yourself through the dying journey, if you had the money to pay for it, to pay for this journey through a dark place, which originally had been a feminine place, the, all of the images of the underworld in the ancient Near East were of the body of fate, of birth and death, were the body of the feminine, Moira, that later became Arishkagel in the Sumerian myths, the bright goddess of the upper world, Venus, and the dark goddess of the lower world, Arishkagel. So this whole idea of the patriarchy have, trying to transcend death to get above the darkness to get above endings forms itself in in this concept of hades and pluto and that you can actually navigate it and negotiate with money to get through to come back transformed so a part of how modern astrologers tend to talk about pluto rather than death and loss and grief is as transformation so liz green goes on to say transformation is a resonant word redolent of numinosity and deep psychic purpose and most encouraging to someone who's approaching a transit or progression involving Pluto. But it is unfortunately the sort of word which we like to call on when the meaning is vague or merely intellectual or when the experience foreshadows crisis and suffering. It's not easy to watch a necessary suffering. 
For one thing, our compassion cries out that it should not be necessary for our feeling values are not often in sympathy with Pluto's ruthless law. For another, we see ourselves mirrored in that other's incipient disintegration or lost. How can we trust unless one has spent time in despair, darkness, rage, and powerlessness, and has found out what supports life when the ego can no longer make its accustomed choices? So one of the things that's happening to the United States right now, this is today, eight in the morning. I'm going to interrupt you again, because I just want, I would love if you can read that last quote one more time. It feels so pertinent to what we just explored. Oh, that's why I figured it out. (laughs) So good. Yeah. It's not at all easy to watch unnecessary suffering. For one thing, our compassion cries out that it should not be necessary For our feeling values are not often in sympathy with Pluto's ruthless law. For another, we see ourselves mirrored in that other's disintegration or loss. Pluto's particularly difficult to work with unless one has some trust in fate, but how can one trust it unless one has spent time in despair, darkness, rage, and powerlessness, and has found out what supports life when the ego can no longer make its accustomed choices. So this is exactly what Jung is talking about in footnote 75 and in the chapter on death and the destruction of temples that hold something as an ideal that rigidifies it in time. Stunning. Beautiful. Thank you. So here we are as a nation with Pluto, this energy in a place of building value, money, enoughness that we've built a temple since 1776 around this and in that time the in the constant and knowable and reliable orbits of the planets we find ourselves here at our pluto return none of us will personally live long enough to experience this in our personness but in our collective we are here of having to of of facing the collapse of the temple that we have built to enoughness. And it's full of suffering. And it has to do with the collapse of structures that we've built that um, have given us meaning and an ego place to be and made us heroic. Jung says in the chapter on the remains of temples, he says, I am completely alone. I can no longer say to you, listen, or you should, or you could. Mm -hmm. And this is our country. How do we tell anybody that they should or that they could if we have brought ourselves to having to really look at our vices and our virtues and to not know the difference between them? And again, as Liz Green observes in her book, and as anyone who works with the dying or anyone who's held the hand of someone you love who is dying, you know that everything changes. It's not just pay the gold to the man in the river and come back transformed. There's loss. And all the molecules of the world are rearranged and they don't rearrange themselves the way they were. That's why John Donne said, every man's death diminishes me. Mm. So as a culture, we are in a powerful, yes, we can euphemistically call it a transformation, but Jung in these two chapters is describing our our arrival at this point in the collective. And so it affects each of us personally. And he'll go on to talk about facing East and we'll finally get to meet Isdubar no, so it isn't that in, in, in this time that we're at the end of a very long, long arc of arrival to this pivot. And because it's taken us so long to get here, the pivot won't be quick. I had, was having this conversation with my friends yesterday, and we were talking about large ships changing direction. And she said, oh, yeah, the trim tab. I said, what's a trim tab? She says, this little thing that you move hundreds of thousands of pounds in another direction. That's where we are. And Pluto is the agent. 
And how long is a Pluto, how long do they cross each other? How long is the Pluto, Pluto return? What we're between seeing? Now, between, it's intense right now. You can see that as of today, Pluto's retrograding on the 24th degree of Capricorn. In the early months of the year, it came right up to 27. It will retrograde back and it will come up here over the next few years up, up to 2024. Oh, good. Terrific. <laughs> we have plenty left to do. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully that's a profound cleansing, uh, profound cleaning of, of our world and our country. Um, thank you, Carol. Beautiful. What a powerful reading as well. It's, it's hard to watch the suffering and it's hard and it, it's hard to suffer. But Jung, I think, speaks so eloquently about this. And I think what's a part of it also that he really comes to is, is to be alone. And um, uh, I think about all of the great indigenous cultures that talk about facing North alone, facing, facing the divine alone. Mm -hmm. And, and the, and that what not, not to pro provoke or instigate or ignite something else not, well, I'm doing this so something else good will happen as a result of this, but to really come to it. And that, I think that's the cultural moment that we're in. I've really been noticing, too, just alchemically, the speaking of what we do with suffering, you know, just the feeling that, that we're in another stage of the alchemical process collectively right now. We, we all went into our little containers, our closed containers, you know, and the bubbling and the fire has started and we can see that collectively and we can see it internally. I think we're all kind of going through different phases with this, but that Plutonian transformation to be worked and worked and worked by this, it's profound. Thank you. Anne, do you want to jump in now before we go to Q&A with your feelings? Anne, our resident German scholar and philosopher. We're unmuting you here again, darling. Well, as always, as I said to Satya, when I, when I work with a couple of these chapters, especially with these two, I come to such a profound sense and awe of what it was that Jung tried to do in one lifetime, mm -hmm. because he was really clear. Uh, these two, two chapters are very, very full of Nietzsche, very full of Zarathustra. But Nietzsche was very, very clear about God is dead. And, and what did he really mean by God is dead? I, I, I would say he meant uh, a transcendental patrifocal principle of right, wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's easy enough to say, but actually being able to live through that death. I mean, we still have it. We're still in the shockwaves of that earthquake, I think, um, letting go um, of good, bad, right, wrong, all those dualities. But of course, I find them again and again in myself. Is it as easy to be with success, to, with failure as it is success? So putting these two chapters in that way, even if they're not always clear, is absolutely right. So that the second chapter, which is what Zarathustra was all about, and footnote 90 is perfect, uh, perfect nature. The transition from morning to afternoon is a transvaluation of earlier values. That's just an English translation of the very, very famous Nietzschean quote. Um, we call it the eternal recurrence. It's a very bad translation. It's the turning around of all former ideals is the turning around of the values that upheld Western civilization for 2,000 plus years. And as Carol, I mean, I agree with everything Carol Liz Green just said, it's not easy. And you can feel, Satya, as you said, Jung's own real visceral struggle mm -hmm. with that death in these two chapters, at least for me. It's easy to just look at the greening but yeah. he's, there, he's going through it in his own body. I mean, there he is, European white male privilege, Swiss Protestant stock, even as a rebel, to just process that in one lifetime and then let go of it. Because if you don't clean it out, if it doesn't end up dead, then there's no possibility of rebirth. And, and it's the, only that aspect that I would like very much to emphasize, that it's not, oh, this lovely, sweet transformation where I let go of one thing and then I can project it on 
divine mother. I let go of God the Father and then over here. No, it's much, much deeper. I have to go through the depth of the loss, the depth of the suffering. And so I, I came more and more to appreciate the struggle that's going on in these phenomenal chapters. Uh, the wisdom that he comes to, but also what he and his life went through. But if I can be allowed, what Carol just said, I want to tell a dream that I had 20 years ago. I'm on one of those great big ships, Carol, with a trim tab, only the trim tab. And I know, because I lived on a boat for a long time, I know how long it takes one of those boats to turn around. And there are a thousand other women we're all naked, and we're on this boat that's manned by men, captain, all of them. And our assignment is that we're to jump off of this ship, swim against it with our naked bodies, and stop it. Turn it around. And I just kept mm. thinking of that as, I, as you read Liz Green. Mm. And... <laughs> This. That's, that's all. It's so stunning. I mean, it actually just just brought back a dream that I had. I'll, I'll email you over, um, but, okay. but, but, but shortly before the election, but a, a similar dream that was very confusing and clearly collective and tragic, but also young individual women on sailboats. I mean, this is fascinating. Yeah. Just, wow. And again, this feeling that what we're all co-creating here and what is coming has not existed before. Right. You know, and so this idea of, you know, again, the, the red book, the way of what is to come, you know, because, Anne, I think when you said we can't just then project it onto the divine mother or project it here, if we are truly living this and growing and becoming ourselves, it hasn't existed before. There is no conceptual way to understand it. And I think that's what drives us all mad is when we're being messy and confusing and when our bodies are saying, go do this, or our, our art or our writing or our ideas are saying, go do this, we want it to make sense based on something we already understand, but that's antithetical to the point because it hasn't yeah. existed, right? Exactly. Um, and we mustn't lose that. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just one more, and one more thing. I'd love for you to read that full footnote. This is from 1926, and it's from The Unconscious in Normal and Sick psychic, psychic Life. The transition from morning to afternoon is a transvaluation of earlier values. From this comes the necessity to appreciate the value of the opposite of our former ideals, to recognize the error in former truth, and to feel how much antagonism and even hatred lay in what had formerly passed for love for us. This is why I cannot stand the phrase, the king is dead, long live the king. <laughs> that idea. That wasn't what Nietzsche meant. No. <clears throat> what did he mean? He meant it's time for a transvaluation of all, of all. a turning yeah. upside down. Yeah. Something yeah. we've not seen before. Yeah. I mean, he was slightly mad. I think it was almost shamanic. Well, he Prophetic. couldn't tolerate it, right? I mean, I think that was yeah. part of Jung's relationship to the spoke Zarathustra, is trying to understand what, what Nietzsche couldn't get to. They all were, because it was coming from such a deep place. It wasn't coming from the head. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. saw something. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, we're bubbling now. All right, y'all. Um, <laughs> So we're gonna go to Q&A, and thank you again all for being here and taking this journey with us week to week. Anita, hi. Hi, actually so much resonance, it's just amazing. I, so I'm just gonna, I just have a comment on the very last piece of just the synchronicity of how immediately, practically after the election in 2016, uh, I had a dream also on which I was on a large sailing ship, the old kind of sailing ship, but with young men of our time who were going to be the crew. And it was my job to teach them how to sail this boat um, mm. out across the sea. So I just found that really interesting. 
you know, the, the re-education in a certain sense um, of young masculine, masculinity, you know, in terms of how we meet what comes next. So, yeah. so profound. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. That image of the sailboat too, it's such a, I haven't thought of it for a while. I use, I use the surfboard more often of kind of navigating and, you know, navigating the waters of existence, you know, that quality of the, of um, the sailboat. Yes. Hi, Magda. You there? Hi. Yes. I'm being a shy folk. Hi, shy one. To... <laughs> We're glad you're here. Thank you. I just want to speak to the dreams because I was, and I was so moved by your dream. Um, I had two dreams in November and December. Um, in the first one, I was a, part of a team of women warriors and we were going we were going to fight and um we didn't know if we were coming back and then a month later i had a dream that there was this like mob boss guy who was actually represented by kevin spacey which is kind of funny but i was supposed to go tell him to stop and everybody said you can't do it you can't do it you know it's not safe and i decided i was going to go naked down to meet him and just ask him to stop. Mm. So thank what, you for how did it go? <laughs> there wasn't an ending. <laughs> and we don't know yet. We don't know. We'll yet. See. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Magda, so much. Uh, hi, John. It, it, maybe it seems like Jung was able to direct us in a way of resolving this that Nietzsche could not. I'm, I'm a lot more familiar with writings of Nietzsche and with Carl Jung. I always liked the younger Nietzsche up to and including Zarathustra, but the late, the older Nietzsche, he's just nasty. I mean, he's, you know, will to power, pity and compassion are bad things. And it's just he, somewhere about three-fifths of the way through his corpus, I just thought he got derailed and just off the base. And so maybe, but maybe Jung, maybe what this is about, we can sort of rescue we've got the we've got the rescue pattern now that he couldn't get so yeah. it's just a thought yeah thank you john i think that's a kind of a significant component of jung's work really is is working through where nietzsche got stuck and couldn't continue and do you want right. to that a bit i agree completely there was like a moment there where so many not not just nietzsche really got they got stuck on the death part on the cold that cold black figure and it was Jung who really came in for the like the phoenix as he talks about and, and the that, that's what's so remarkable the feminine too i mean i think again yeah. in these sections the feminine doesn't explicitly come up as female but it comes up in the greening again in my opinion how we all yeah. understand these things but it comes up in the greening and the life, you know, all of this coming back, this energy coming back, which again, I am not by any stretch a Nietzsche scholar, but, but these different ways that the many of those philosophies got stuck in the masculine and, yeah. and the intellect and the ideals. And there's this way that the life came back in Jung's work so profoundly. I mean, it's not, he worked very hard on it and was allowed himself to be deeply influenced by actual females in his world again, you know, which is critical. Um, he had deep and vulnerable relationships with females, complicated, but they were there. Thank you. Okay, we might, um, next week we're going to encounter Isdubar um, on the first day, chapter eight. And I think Carol, is this your favorite chapter? I think so. I think, <laughs> I think the encounter with Istubar and everything that Jung learns in relationship to Istubar, that as Jung has, as the temples are collapsing and Jung is alone, but still on a path, he faces East and encounters this king of the East, this god of the East. And, um, and having made that journey in my own way myself, I, I, I really, I still continue to both benefit from and be moved by this, this particular part of the, this encounter in this particular part of the book, the, the conversation that ensues, the near death that ensues, the transformation that ensues. So I look forward to it. Okay, all, thank you so much for your presence. Wonderful to be with you. We'll Bye -bye. see you next week and take care of yourselves.
Many thanks to our incredible podcast team, to Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights, to our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast, to Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes, to Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music, and to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.